Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We are, uh, because of the Lord's Supper, we're just going to consider one, one little phrase, if you will, out of John, but we're going to expand it from the rest of the Scripture. It's one of those doctrines that we don't talk about an awful lot, but it's a, a wonderful, precious truth. Last week, uh, uh, we left, Larry and I, Pastor Larry and I left on Sunday afternoon, and we were at a pastor seminar Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and uh, it was in Salem, Oregon, and the president of Corbin College, uh, which is where I graduated from college, invited us all to come out for lunch, so we all went out there to the school for lunch and uh, um, brought back a lot of fond memories, and uh, I gave Larry as many stories as he could stand without rolling his eyes up and falling over unconscious from hearing about the old days and uh, <laughs> yeah he's he's he you know he works for me so he was sitting there very yeah 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 <laughs> thinking oh lord <laughs> yeah i can read minds i told the stories anyway <laughs> I, I held back a little one of my fondest one of my fondest memories from those days, of course, was meeting the fine uh, young lady who would become my wife, Susan, and uh, there were a couple of traditions that went along with engagement back then, which uh, we managed to bypass. Uh, one of them was that when a young man got engaged, the other men in the dorm would come after dorm time in and kidnap him and take him to a trial in which he would be found guilty of uh, leaving the ranks of the bachelors till the rapture and uh, upon being convicted of being engaged then he would be either thrown in a muddy pond or in later years tied to a tree and pelted with food products which were stolen from the cafeteria fine good christian school yeah The girls were much more sentimental and romantic. They would go to the chapel and have this, this thing called a candlelight service. And, and one day the notice would mysteriously appear, you know, candlelight service tonight. Oh, nobody knew who's engaged. And they would come and the ring would be on a candle or attached to a candle. And it would be passed all around. Everybody looked at it. And then after everybody had looked at it, the girl who was engaged would take it off and put it on her hand. And they would all squeal with delight and so on. <laughs> Well, I didn't want to risk getting engaged to the wrong girl at one of those things. And so I asked, I, there were some pretty desperate girls there. Um, <laughs> I asked my advisor, the Reverend Dr. David Drullinger, if he, would, uh, if he would make an announcement after chapel. We'd talked about getting married for some time, and, and then we finally decided between us and... Uh, but we didn't have a ring yet, and uh, so when I finally got that together, I said, would you do this? So he got up after chapel and started to drone on about marriage or something, and then at some point he said, it's my privilege to announce the engagement of Dave Lunsford and Sue Marsh, and I pulled the ring out of my pocket, and everybody <laughs> clapped, you know. In John 3, we get the first hint about the glorious truth of the fact that you are engaged to Christ. Now I know for some of us men that may be a little bit of a hard thought to get our minds around. It's not 
completely thinking in the normal way of marriage, obviously, but there is a love relationship between us and Christ that is likened to a bridegroom and a bride. Follow me as I read from John 3, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bride who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John clearly said he was, in that day's terminology, the friend of the bridegroom. We would call that man today the best man. He says, but Jesus is the groom and there is a bride. And I want to talk about that wonderful truth today because it, 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 it highlights the wonderful nature of the relationship that we have with Christ. And inherent in it are some very special blessings, some of which we're familiar with, but we didn't know it went along with this truth of, of being engaged to Christ. First thing that we need to understand here are the words of John. One of the things we don't want to be guilty of is ever taking Scripture out of its context. We want to understand the clear intent of the Scripture. What are the primary intent of John the Baptist's words here? The primary intent of John the Baptist's words are this. John was using the common illustration of marriage to help his disciples understand his position relative to Christ's position. He said, Christ is the groom. I am the best man. Don't put attention on me. Put attention on him. That's the whole plan. That's what was supposed to happen all along. That is the clear and primary intention of John the Baptist. But there is also a past inspiration for his words. And by past, I mean in time past, in the Old Testament time period, we read this scripture from Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Now in the Old Testament, this concept of God being the husband of Israel, God's chosen people, is used a number of times, and the primary way that it's used is in a rebuke, if you will, to the people of Israel when they would walk away from God. And God likened it to spiritual adultery. He said for the people of Israel to stop worshiping him and go over and to worship Baal or Molech or whatever God was around at the time, he said, you are like a wife who is having an adulterous affair with another man. And so the, this imagery is there of God as the husband, Israel as the wife. Now why would that be a reference point for John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet. He did not live in the New Testament era. That didn't start till after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so John the Baptist is thinking, I know the Messiah is coming, and I know that he is going to institute this whole new era for the people of Israel. And I know there's a reference point to God as the husband and Israel as the wife. And so when he's trying to illustrate his position to his disciples, I think it may have been very natural to him to say, oh, I know something that, that they can get their minds around, the bridegroom and the bride and all of this. 
And so I, I think there was a reference point there for him in the Old Testament. The third aspect of this is here, and it's what I've called the prophetic importance of his words. I don't particularly think that John the Baptist knew what he was saying in a prophetic sense. Just like I don't think King David in the Old Testament when he wrote those Psalms that not only talked about his situation but talked about Jesus Christ, I don't think he knew what was coming. He may have gotten some glimpses into it. I think he was pouring his heart out to God and, and keeping a journal and we got to see it, but by God's divine inspiration, we understand that he was a prophet. He was talking about things future. And I think that happened with John the Baptist as well. And so what is the prophetic concept of the bridegroom? Let's go all the way to the end of the Bible, almost, Revelation 19. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, to the wife, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Clearly, John didn't know it, but Jesus is a bridegroom and here when we go all the way not only to the end of the bible but to the toward the culmination time period of of history as we know it we find out there's going to be a marriage supper of the lamb now what's a marriage supper in the days of christ when a person got engaged there would be you know a family conference between the two families where they arranged the marriage and then they would come out of that saying okay this man and this woman they're going to be married and usually they waited a year before they were married and when that time frame came to be the best man would go and get the bride and escort her to the place where the marriage supper would be held and so the marriage supper was actually the, the feast, and it could last for a whole week. It was the celebration of the marriage. It was the final coming together of the man and the woman. And there's tremendous imagery there for us. The relationship between Christ and the believer is characterized in the New Testament in seven different ways. He's talked about as the shepherd and the sheep. He's talked about as the vine and the branches. He's talked about as the cornerstone and us as the living stones being built up into a spiritual household, 1 Peter. The high priest and the kingdom of priests. The head and the body with many members. The body of Christ being a term that we apply to the church, which is made up of all believers of all time. 
the last Adam and the new creation. Romans chapter 5 talks about Adam leading the world into sin or, or causing sin to come upon the whole world. Jesus Christ as, as the second Adam or the last Adam, he has initiated salvation for everybody and we are the new creation. And the seventh way that he is spoken of is the bridegroom and the bride. And obviously all of those words, all of those concepts are chosen on purpose by God to teach us different things in our relationship with Christ. And, and, and I hope you understand how common all those things are. Now, I, I know you'll say, well, living stones, that's not common. But the idea of the, the cornerstone and the stones on top of it and so on, they were all common things around them, around people in that day and age. And most of them we can relate to fairly well. The bridegroom and the bride. So what do we learn about our relationship with Christ through this truth that he is the bridegroom and we, us who are believers, are the bride? Well, the first thing we learn is this. Jesus has committed himself to the church. And if you're new to, to Christian truth, I want you to understand that the word church is equivalent to to saying the body of Christ, which is also equivalent to say all believers of all time. That's church with a capital C. That's not First Baptist Church of Ferndale, although we're part of that big capital C. Jesus has committed himself to the church as a man commits himself to a woman when they get engaged. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 says, In him, in Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed or put in a protective environment so that nothing could get to you. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The word guarantee there, one of the ways it's used is of an engagement ring. That was one of the words that would be used in that time period. I apologize for our projector. We're getting a new lamp this week. We didn't realize the thing was dying on us. The, the, the bulb was going out, so it's a little hard to see. Your eyes are not going bad. Lord willing, by next week it'll be clear and bright again. An engagement ring. I had to wait till the mighty Uncle Sam decided I should get my refund before I could buy an engagement ring for my wife. Thankfully, she took me seriously without a ring before that when we agreed we would get married. And in our day and age, we understand that, that perhaps in many ways the verbal commitment is the real commitment. It's not, it's not that you've given me something worth you know, some money, and so it's not that you're going to come through because you gave me a ring. We understand that. But in that day and age, engagement was a legally binding agreement. In fact, to break an engagement was to get divorced. And so in this relationship that we have with Christ, he has committed himself to us. And I want to go back to that passage and have you understand what is the engagement ring he has given us. It is the Holy Spirit. 
Now, some aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry we're going to talk about in a minute. You're already aware of those. But what you might not have been aware of is that the fact that you have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you, that is Christ also saying, I'm coming for you. It's his promise. It's his engagement ring to us. Jesus has committed himself to the church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, when a bride looks at her engagement ring, she gets all gaga. Going to get married. Not going to be long now. I'm told that many women, if not most, think about marriage much more than men do. As in all the way back to childhood, sometimes they're thinking about that wedding day and when she finally has the ring, she goes, yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. What is the engagement ring for us? It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there are three broad things that the Holy Spirit does for us that show us that he is with us. And the first one is the understanding of scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, we find out that if you are a born-again person, who is living righteously with God, then the Holy Spirit is active in you and one of his ministries is opening up your eyes and ears and heart to understand the truth of God. If you are here today and you say, you know what, Pastor Dave, I read the Bible and nothing happens, there's only one of two reasons for that. And one reason is that the Holy Spirit of God is not in you opening your eyes. We call that illumination. He, he turns the light on so that when you read the scripture, it does make sense to you. If you're saying, you know, man, I open up the Bible. In fact, I don't open up the Bible because when I open it up, nothing happens. If that's the case, then the problem is not the Holy Spirit of God. It's you. And you have not come to believe in Christ as your Savior. And because you haven't put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit has not come in. You might be a highly educated person who thinks you ought to be able to put, pick up any book and grasp it and understand it. Not so. It's a spiritual endeavor. Now, if you're a Christian, if you know, Pastor Dave, I know for certain I accepted Christ, and the Word of God is not open to you, it's not growing in your mind and heart and life, then it's because you're hanging on to your sin. You're refusing to let go of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, the particular sin of the Corinthian church, which Paul had to rebuke, was divisiveness. That is, they had their little groups of friends and they refused to reach out to anybody else in the church. And not only that, but they elevated their groups of friends by saying, our group is better than your group because our group was formed under Pastor Paul. And our group was formed under this. And our group follows this. And our group follows that. And Paul, and Paul writes to him and says, you are sinning. Therefore, I had to talk to you just like an unbeliever because you can't grasp the truth of God. Every time you open the word of God and you get something from it, Christian, that is your engagement ring. That's God making himself real to you. Some of us who have known the Lord for a long time take for granted that we understand the Bible. We think, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, there's a few obscure things there in the book of Revelation or, you know, in, in some prophet in the Old Testament, but most of us just straight up, straight plain. And we think, what's the big deal? Because we've forgotten it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
That's your engagement ring. The second part of your engagement ring is this, the confidence of salvation. It was my privilege a couple of weeks ago to, to preach God's truth at Frieda Brulin's uh, memorial service. And I preached out of 2 Corinthians 5 and the, the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit that gives us confidence so that I can stand here today and say, if I drop dead before this sermon is over, it's good for me and bad for you. I know where I'm going. There's no doubt about it. And for that matter, I have confidence about many of you who I know. Some of you I don't know, and that's why I don't have confidence yet. But as we talk and as we fellowship, there's a witness of the Spirit between us. I see your lives. I see the real transformation in your life. And I'll have no problem if I'm alive after you and I'm preaching at your funeral. I'll have no problem standing here and saying, Brother so-and-so's with the Lord or Sister so-and-so's with the Lord. I have no problem saying that at all. I don't hesitate. I don't blink. You know, if somebody were to question me on it, I'd say, I have no doubt. Now, why is that? It's because the Holy Spirit is in me and the Holy Spirit's in you. It's not me. It's not because I went to that fine Bible college down in Salem, Oregon and got all kinds of fine theological education. It is not. Well, maybe it is because I did learn God's word and that, that really is where the confidence comes from. It's because the Holy Spirit is in me. And one of the great blessings that God decided to put with the ministry of the Holy Spirit is confidence. It's not arrogant to say, I know I'm going to heaven. It's all because of God, the confidence of the Holy Spirit. The third thing that I would offer to you as a third broad area of the ministry of the Holy Spirit comes from John 14, and it's peace in the midst of difficulty. Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and part of that is I'm going to give you my peace. Now, my peace is not like the peace of the world. And he doesn't go on to define it, but it's real simple. What does it mean to have peace in the world? It means when the Palestinians and the Israelis stop shooting at each other. And, uh, you know, when that day happens, I'll probably go to Israel and visit again. We would call that peace. Uh, we would call it peace if Al-Qaeda stopped trying to uh, bomb things in Iraq. That would be peace. And that, that's a good kind of peace. I'm not against that. Don't get me wrong. You would call it peace in your life if you went home today and nobody argued about the remote control for the TV. You'd say, finally, I'm at peace. <laughs> Some of you would call it peace if you went home from church today and and that person with the remote turned it to the channel. You want to watch. And you'd say, finally, I'm at peace. The worldly kind of peace is the absence of conflict. Now, I'm not a pessimist, but I just believe you're always going to have some conflict the rest of your life. Until you meet Jesus. Until you go to heaven where there is no sin. And when you're in a place where there is no sin, there will be no conflict. Because everybody will truly be on the same page. Headed in the same direction. But until then, you're going to have difficulty. And the miracle of God, Christian, is that you can be at peace when things aren't perfect. Now, I, I know that's easier to preach than to live. I know it for myself. I know it for you. But I know it's possible. Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, calls it the peace which passes understanding. People who don't know the Lord don't understand. 
You know, one of the places where this comes into a very, a very mundane part of life is football. One of the ways that Christian professional football players are criticized is, is that they don't get angry enough when things don't go well. You see, the world looks at it and says, if, you know, if, if things didn't go well, if your teammates let you down, you should just be cussing and swearing and ranting and raving, stomping around if you really cared. And so they look at Christians and say, you don't care enough. You're actually a detriment to the team. Yeah, you're right. I'd rather be in a place where more people are angry and spewing their anger than to be in a place where people are peaceful and able to come to grips with the fact that sometimes things work out and sometimes they don't. And that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian because our faith transcends the events of daily life. Christian, whenever you experience these works of the Holy Spirit, you are also being reassured that one day you will be reunited with your Savior face to face and that you will spend eternity in sweet communion with Him. That is your engagement ring. The groom, the prospective groom has given it to you. Now, as I've already been saying, friend, if you're here today and these ministries of the Holy Spirit are not active in your life, then you need to pay attention to Romans chapter 8, verse 9, which says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If these ministries of the Holy Spirit are not active in you, if you've never known them to be active in you, you are not a believer. And I say that as kindly as I can because I want you to be a believer. I want you to have this. I want to stand up at your funeral and say, brother, so-and-so's with the Lord. When I was in Seattle and I was working with the police department, I had lots of funerals from people who didn't know the Lord. And I preached the gospel every time, told people what they needed to know, but I never got to stand up and say, this fellow, he's with the Lord. Never. They came in sour. They went out sour because they didn't know the Lord. And occasionally there'd be one or two Christians who'd come up and say, thanks for that. Because they knew these folks needed to hear the truth. But I want to preach your funeral with joy. One of the things that I, that I, I have a hard time knowing how to handle is, you know, on, like, like this last time, I think I wore this suit to, to Frida's uh, memorial service. So when I get up in the morning, I put my suit on. I'm not going to go change my clothes halfway through the day. And went to McDonald's for my normal breakfast. And I just know somebody's going to go, hey, you're all dressed up today. And I know when I say, I'm preaching a funeral this afternoon, <laughs> that they're going to go, ooh. Don't, tell, don't talk about it. Don't want to hear about it. But I've just started saying, when, I, when those comments come, I just say, it's okay, she's with the Lord. And I mean that. Isn't that a great thing? Wow. Wow. Jesus has committed himself to us. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is our evidence that he is committed to us. He's not going to run off. We are not going to be a jilted lover. But not only has he committed himself to us, he is preparing us for himself. Have you ever felt a little bit unworthy of Christ? 
If you haven't, you haven't taken a real good look at him lately. But look at this great truth from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify or set apart the bride to, to a righteous purpose. He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Do you know what you're going to look like when you see Christ face to face? You're going to look perfect. I've done a lot of weddings. Everybody always looks good. A lot of protection to the wedding dress to make sure it doesn't get dirty or messed up. And You know, my own, my own daughter comes down the aisle. I came down with her, and then I get up there and look at her. She's beautiful. Christian, you're going to be beautiful when you meet Christ. You know why? Because he's going to make sure it happens. How is he doing that? Well, he's doing it two ways. One, number one, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, all your sin was washed away. Shoo! And the righteousness of Christ was placed upon you. Which means when God looks at you from heaven, you know what he sees? Perfect, white, sinless perfection. Now, while we're here on earth, we got some stuff to work on, don't we? And in fact, that's the passage that we read from 1 John 3. That's the truth there in that passage which says, He who has this hope, the hope of seeing Christ face to face, purifies himself. If you had the opportunity to come to your wedding clean or dirty, I hope you'd choose coming clean. You have the opportunity to choose how you meet Christ face to face. And that ought to motivate you. You ought to say, wow, I want to be ready. And, and, you know, guilt is a good thing, but but I also think there ought to be this joyful thing where you're thinking, I'm going to finally see him face to face. Isn't that going to be a great day? I want to be ready for that. He is preparing us for himself. Christ is our bridegroom. We are the bride. What should we be doing? How should we be preparing ourselves for that wedding feast? First of all, we must be true to him. 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes these words, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed or engaged you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This is the Apostle Paul almost talking like John the Baptist. John the Baptist said he was the best man who was going to be instrumental in bringing these two together. The Apostle Paul's thinking that same way. He said, when I preached the gospel, my intent was for you to come into relationship with Christ. You became engaged to him. I want to present you as a chaste virgin. In other words, I want you to be pure when you meet him. I don't want you to have already lived in sin. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you might put up with it. He's writing to them saying, I am concerned about your spiritual life. I'm afraid a false teacher will come along, and he will teach you this baloney about some other Jesus, and you'll put up with it. 
What's the net result he's concerned about? You will not be a virgin. You will not be pure when you meet Christ face to face. Christian, you need to be busy being true to Christ. Most of you here, I would assume everybody, takes great pride, rightly so, in the fact that they work to be true to their husband or wife. It's not easy, it's not, it's not without challenge, but with work we can do it. We can say, yes, I have never cheated on my wife. We need to take that same spirit and apply it to Jesus Christ and say, I have never cheated on him with some other God, with some other belief system, with some truth outside of the Bible. This last week, unfortunately, one of the seminars that Pastor Larry went to, taught by a friend of mine, this friend has clearly bought into some truth that's not fully from the Bible. Man, I was grieved to read the stuff. I mean, grieved enough, I'm going to write to his pastor and to him and just say, are you kidding me? Have you really bought into this? Because the big point is this, Christian. God is either honored or dishonored by the way you live your life. Now, the byproduct of how you live your life is your own joy and your own peace and, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, we're either honoring God or we're not. We're either being true to Christ as our Savior and our, our groom, or we're not being true. Some of you have experienced a betrayal by a husband or a wife or a fiancé, maybe even a betrayal by a good friend. Maybe you have been a betrayer. Could I challenge you to think about Christ today along that line and to think, boy, I don't want him to feel that way. I know how painful that was. Or I know how guilty I felt. I don't want to be that way with Christ. I want to be true with Christ. I don't want him to be hurt by my sin. We must be true to him. Secondly, we must prepare ourselves for him. We already talked about that a little bit. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. What a great blessing God has given us. First John, or John 1.14, as many as received him to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. God is willing to put his name on you. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You don't have to tell most brides to get ready for their wedding day. Usually that's all they think about from the moment that ring goes on the finger. The dress, the veil, the shoes, the bridesmaid's dresses, the bridesmaid's shoes, the flowers, the, the table, the decorations. Oh, Lord. I had two weddings in three months. Whew. Everything has to be perfect. And... I, I joke about it, but hey, I'm glad my girls are pure and they're marrying good men, and you know, so it, it's worth celebrating. Don't get me wrong. But you know what, friend? You're going to meet Jesus. 
Have you given your meeting with Jesus as much attention as you've given your wedding? I mean, hours and hours and hours and dollars and dollars goes into a wedding. Have you given that much effort to meeting Jesus? Now, I know you don't have to earn your salvation. Don't get me wrong. If you're new here, don't don't think that I'm teaching that because I'm not. But your righteousness comes by your effort in applying the word of God to your life. Have you given effort to being ready to meet Jesus? The third thing that we need to do, we need to be true to him. We must prepare ourselves for him. We must send him our love. We must send him our love. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Just back a few pages from where we are in John 3. Luke twenty-two thirteen. 13. You see this, I hope you understand that we didn't look at all the scriptures today that talk about the bride and the bridegroom and these, these allusions to this relationship, but one of them is here and it's critical to the Lord's Supper. Luke twenty-two thirteen. So they went and found it. They found the upper room as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you that I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I believe that's referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The fulfillment of this picture which he has commanded us to regularly partake of. Verse 17, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you when jesus instituted the lord what we call the lord's supper he said there's coming a day when we're going to do this again face to face and it's that marriage supper a wedding is a happy time should be It's a feast, it's a celebration, it's a wonderful time. What should we be doing to worship the Lord together? We should be following what Hebrews 13, 15 says. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. When Jesus instituted this Lord's Supper, he said, do this to remember me. That's the essence of worship, to think about Christ and to to honor him with our thoughts and with our actions. Hebrews 13, 15 says we should do it continually. Sue and I lived in different states for the three months before our wedding. And I have to tell you, it was not hard to buy a card and to write all over it and tell her how much I missed her in the most disgusting, mushy ways, (laughs) and put that in the mail and send it to her. That was not hard to do. Cards, letters, not as many phone calls as now because 
It was significantly more expensive, and I was an intern in a church. But it was not hard. Nobody had to tell me, oh, Dave, you, you, you ought to give your wife a call. You ought to send her a card. You ought to talk to her. Uh, duh. Can't wait. You're going to come into a, a unique, personal, unending, face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus when you see him in heaven. Are you ever interested in talking to him now? If he means anything to you at all, it shouldn't be hard, should it? I've always loved the Lord's Supper because it's a time when, from, a, from an earthly perspective, it just seems like we get to be a little closer face-to-face -face with Jesus. And I hope that's your perspective today. And I hope that you'll tell him how much you love him as we sing to him, as we receive these elements, and as we go out of here to live our lives. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the wonderful relationship we have with Christ. And we're so glad for how great his love is for us. Help us to celebrate that today as we eat this bread and drink this juice. I pray in his name, amen.